Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that as we study today, that you would bring to this class the very lesson that you intend, that you would use the history of the Advent movement to warn and inspire us. And I ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today we're talking about six men, not about the whole story of their life, but about a particular contribution they made to what has become the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I have thought about, and if time permits, I might add several more. But these six are particularly interesting. O.R.L. Crozier was the man who first wrote about the sanctuary message that you understand today. He first wrote out the message that Jesus would co- went into the most holy place on October 22, 1844. He was the one that helped Adventists understand why they had been disappointed. And he began writing that just about on October 23. That is when he began discussing it. Litch, Josiah Litch, was a man we mentioned yesterday. He was that minister who joined William Miller. While William Miller was not the first man to use the day-for-year principle, in fact, that principle is traced by some way back to Joachim of Florence, who was a false prophet of the 12th century. Yet Josiah Litch was the first man to make a prediction based upon the day-for-year principle that came to be true. That is, where people could look and say, it happened. It's one thing to use the day-for-year principle and say it was fulfilled in the past. You could almost cut and paste and put it on the past. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like I can say, here's 600-year prophecy, and it started in this date and ended in that date. See, it was fulfilled. But it's an entirely different thing to predict a future event at a certain time and have it happen. That's what Josiah Litch did. We talked about it yesterday, the fall of the Ottoman Empire. August 11, 1840. T.M. Preble was a Sabbatarian, originally, of course, a Sunday keeper, but when he came across the truth about the Seventh-day Sabbath, he published it in a little tract. That tract was read by Joseph Bates. Joseph Bates accepted it and shared it with some of his friends, Ellen and James White, and the rest is history of how the little group of Adventists came to know about the Seventh-day Sabbath. Ellen White, for example, was a prophet before she was a Sabbatarian. It was through trouble we learned about the Sabbath. Samuel Snow, Sheffield Snow, his initials were SSS. Samuel Snow was the first expositor of the prophecies 
to correlate the Day of Atonement with the cleansing of the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14. He wasn't the first to really allude to it. Um, William Miller had even made a passing allusion to the fact there might be a connection. But he was the first one to really develop the idea. And he presented it at a camp meeting in August of 1844. Yes. The idea that... Yeah, I didn't explain which idea. That in the parable of the ten virgins, where there was the cry, the midnight cry, go ye out to meet him. That that was fulfilled in... I need to back up, Miss Tara, or this isn't going to make any sense to you. The, the main idea he was presenting was that the Day of Atonement is connected to the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8.14. That when it says, 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, that that was referring to the Day of Atonement. And following that reckoning through as he developed it, he showed that the Day of Atonement would fall that year in October 22. So he was the first one to promote the idea that Christ would come back on October 22, 1844. And he presented that idea in August of 1844 at a camp meeting in what came to be known as the Midnight Cry. How did he calculate midnight? Why did it have such power? I'll give you an example of his kind of prophetic interpretation. He showed that in the parable of the ten virgins, that, that it was a representation of the Millerite movement. Then he showed that the cry goes forth at midnight. Which virgins were sleeping, the wise or the foolish? They both were sleeping, exactly that. They both were sleeping. And he showed that since the disappointment in the spring of 1844, that the Millerites had been asleep in their energy in preaching about the second advent that had really shut down their energy. Can you understand why it would shut down their energy if they expected Christ to come back in April and he didn't do it? Did you all know that the Millerites expected Christ to come back in April of 1844? They did. They didn't have a very specific date. Some did. I mean, they'd set a number of dates. Samuel Snow showed that if a day in Bible prophecy is a year, then how long would a night be? I mean, if a 24-hour period is a year, it would be six months. Then how long would the middle night be from the beginning of the night? Three months. And he showed that from the beginning of the disappointment until the time early in August when he was preaching, that it had been about three months. And that this was the midnight cry. What did the midnight cry do in the parable? It woke up the sleeping virgins. And they went forth to meet the bridegroom. Anyway, the power of that movement, maybe we'll talk about later. You'll read about it if we don't. Some compared it to a tornado. Some compared it to electricity. It just zapped to life an entire movement that had become lethargic. Anyway, that was Samuel Snow, the Midnight Cry. Samuel. 
than George Storrs in the year of 1844, kind of late in his preaching of the Advent movement, he discovered that the soul sleeps unconsciously in the grave when it dies and that immortality is promised only to the righteous after the resurrection and that God only has immortality naturally and that the, de- that the dead will be destroyed in the lake of fire and will cease to exist and will not burn forever and ever. All which things Adventists take almost for granted, but those things were not understood prior to George Storrs by many people at all. George Storrs produced a sermon, six lectures. We printed one of those in the magazine we produced last year. He's the one who taught us about death. Enoch Jacobs was the first man that had the courage and confidence to print the writings of the young Ellen Harmon. Ellen Harmon. The lady who later became Ellen White. But this is before she was married. In a way, you can trace the history of the adoption of the Adventist doctrines of the sanctuary the day for your principle, the Sabbath, the midnight cry, the October 22 movement, death as sleep and the spirit of prophecy, you can trace it to these six men. O.R.L. Crozier repudiated the sanctuary message that he had written about, became an enemy of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, wrote prolifically against it and it was his letters you can find them in the the most bitter enemies of adventism in their works yes sir um, I have J- just a minute after class okay crozier printed this in the daystar extra of February 1846, the material that he had put together with Hiram Edson and with a physician. Josiah Litch, after the Great Disappointment, concluded that his Advent experience had been false. He gave up not only Adventism in general, but specifically the day-for-year principle and went back to a literal understanding of a day-for-day end-time prophecies. After. T.M. Preble, after writing that little publication on the Pope's Sabbath, referring to Sunday, gave up the Sabbath, died as a Sunday keeper. Samuel Snow entirely abandoned Adventism. George Storrs 
became a false prophet in the period immediately following 1844. Had visions, shared them. They didn't come to pass. Decades later, he joined the movement that eventually developed into the Jehovah's Witnesses. Enoch Jacobs joined the Shakers and then eventually the spiritualistic movement that began growing in 1844 and died a spiritualist. If you have Bibles here, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He left Adventism. Yeah. He left the Advent movement. Yeah. First Corinthians chapter one, and we're looking at verse twenty-six. For you see your calling, brethren how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. This is the thought I want to present to you. That God does not choose men to teach his truth because these men are the most spiritual or the most noble of men. It pleases God to use weak things to confound the wise. And the truth is what sanctifies and saves the soul. Nothing is as calculated to deepen your experience with truth than teaching it then nothing is more likely to to work towards your salvation than for you to give your life to teaching the truth. As a result or in harmony with this truth, when there is a man who is particularly weak, the very best thing God can do to increase the chance of him going to heaven is to commission him to teach the truth so that by hearing it and sharing it and giving it, it will have the greatest opportunity to mold him. When God looked forward from the beginning of creation and saw which angel it was that would turn against him and lead out in apostasy, what did he do with that angel? He put him in the very highest position. Gave him the highest place among angels where he would be closest to the light that comes from the Father, have the most opportunity to see God's glory and behold his character, have the least excuse for falling. Verse 
God has followed through with that kind of plan ever since the beginning of time and has commissioned the truth to the weakest of men. And if there's something practical for you to learn from it, if you are given the truth to teach, your mind should never come to the idea that you are such a great one. Not because you are a great one, but because you have a great need. God has entrusted you with responsibility to share, to teach his truth. If the question has ever crossed your mind, why do I know the truth when less than 1% of the population in North America knows the truth? Why am I one of those few, one in 300 that knows it? The answer is not because you're so special. It's not because you were seeking God more earnestly than your fellows. It's not because you are the one who has inherited special genes. God has given you the truth to save you with it and perhaps given it to you before others because you were weaker because you were in greater need. I want to balance out this presentation by sharing another side of the history. Crozier is not the one who originated the the sanctuary doctrine alone. It wasn't him. It was Dr. Hans and Crozier F.B. Hans and Crozier and Hiram Edson. And F.B. Hahn and Hiram Edson were faithful till death with the truth that they found. T.M. Preble didn't find the Sabbath just by reading the Bible. He learned it from a Sabbatarian who learned it from a Seventh-day Baptist. The one that he taught was faithful to the Sabbath the one that taught the one that taught him was faithful to the sabbath and i picked the weak link and told you about him enoch jacobs of course was not ellen harmon he simply printed her writings but even he wasn't sure that she was the one that had the truth he was just willing to risk it, it was kind of speculative in nature the first person to really come down strong in the visions stayed faithful to them. Well, I don't know who the first person was, but the first one who published that way, namely James White, was faithful to them till death. And he married her. Yes? No, the first to come out strong in favor, in defense of them in print. Um, Enoch Jacobs, when he printed them in his magazine, did not, did not say these are certainly true, but here's something interesting that happened. You might be interested like that. The summary of what I'm sharing in this stage is that there are plenty of Adventist pioneers who helped bring our doctrines to us that were faithful to those doctrines. 
it's encouraging to know that there were plenty that were faithful, but it's a fair warning for you to know that there were quite a few that weren't. If I were to add to that list sources that perplex so many, who did God choose to give the health message to our church? You know, Ellen presented a little snippet of it, but it was Kellogg that really developed the thing. And who did God choose to present the message of righteousness by faith? That was Jones. That was Wagner. Did God choose these three men because they were had such holy characters? No, the defects in their character show up before they're chosen to give the messages to the world. And the defects that show up before they're chosen are the defects that overthrow them after their choosing. God chose weak men to give the truth to the world. In the case of Jones and Wagner in particular, their weaknesses were the very kind that could have been remedied by the thoughts that they were teaching. The very kind. So that there's nothing God could have done to more likely save them than to give them the job to teach those to the world. And God certainly did give them the message. If you read Wagner's testimony, he was nearly daydreaming during a sermon no idea what the speaker was talking about or even who was speaking or what the topic was when he was given the message about God's love for men. He needed it. Who is this helpful for? I wouldn't be surprised if some of you in here are called to take a leading role in teaching the truth to the Adventist church or to the world. If it does happen, you ought to keep the sad part of this history in mind. Not to discourage you, but to keep you down. You're still in 1 Corinthians 1. Let's just read more of it here. Verse 27. Verse 26 says you see your calling. That is, you should, it should be visible to you that when God called you, he didn't call you as the most noble person. If you can't see that, you particularly need to think about this. Verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the, what does it say? The weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised has God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I want to tell you one more story of Adventism and then I think there'll be time to tell you one story from the 16th century and we'll close the class. 
our very first day, the introduction of this class, we alluded to that man Joshua B. Himes. You remember that he was a man of conviction, a man who followed William Miller's line of reasoning, put his energy into teaching it. He was the one who received, if possible, more prominence than William Miller in the press. More prominence because William Miller was attacked for having funny ideas, but Joshua Himes was scandalized as a manipulator getting rich off the Millerite movement. Why was he scandalized as getting rich? Because he was printing multiple millions of tracts, hundreds of thousands of books, started nearly a dozen magazines, and was printing all kinds of other materials. And everyone concluded that it must be that he was profiting immensely from all this business. It was scandalous. The records show that all the money that he received, he turned right back in. It was just a breaking even business for him. And if there's anything that proves the scandal of the whole thing, it's what happened in the week prior to October 22. What happened during that week is that very many wealthy Adventists who had held on to their means suddenly came under conviction that the world was about to end and that they did not want to meet Jesus with that money in their bank account. And though they had ignored the calls for means for two and a half years, they came forward in the last few days and tried to give buco bucks to Joshua Himes to use in forwarding the truth. And Joshua Himes told them to keep it. He already had all that could be put to use in the presses in that amount of time. Do you see how that confounds the reports that he was trying to get rich off this thing? Joshua Himes was extremely disappointed on October 22. As much as a man who is enthusiastic about something can be more disappointed than the man who is ho-hum about it, so the man who was most enthusiastic, most enthusiastic was most disappointed. But he didn't just give up. He tried to hold things together. And immediately after the disappointment, the movement began to fall to pieces. Can you understand why? Everyone has to come up with an answer, and if the main guys don't have an answer, then other people are going to come up with answers, whether they're right or wrong, and people craving for answers are going to go after something. That's what happened. People began to go after all kinds of strange things. Joshua Himes tried to resist these fanatical things, to pull things together, to coalesce the movement. It, he tried to stick right to what was taught before 1844. He knew that he didn't know why Christ hadn't come back. It was a mystery to him, but he knew that they had been teaching the truth. So he put together a small body of believers that really stood up as a shield against other movements that were growing. Most of those other movements, you could say 90% of them, were fanatical movements. Some of the most fanatical embraced some of our truths. For example, one of the 
most outrageous ones embrace the truth about death. Joshua Hines was suddenly being besieged by all kinds of strange ideas, and he repelled them. With repelling the strange ideas, he and William Miller and Bliss also repelled some of the truths. You can hardly blame them. If you were taught the truth about death by a man who had kooky ideas, what would you do with it? Do you understand? Can you follow where he's coming from? Anyway, he rejected it. His movement of original Adventism dwindled. And just as it was beginning to dwindle, this is in the 1850s, the various denominations of Protestantism switched their doctrine about the second coming to favor the view that he had been promoting contrary to all of them, namely that Christ would come before the millennium and bring an end to Earth's history. Did you all know that the various major denominations weren't teaching what they teach now in the 1840s? They were teaching an entirely different doctrine. And now they've come to teach what Adventism teaches, basically about, I mean, this part, that Christ comes back and that's the end of the world. They weren't teaching that. They were teaching that there would be a thousand years of improvement and human development of reforms that would lead to a paradise on earth. And at the end of that development of humanity, Christ would come back to be crowned a king and then we'd live happily ever after. Yeah, exactly. They changed from post-millennial to pre-millennial. And when that happens, suddenly, Joshua Himes, his movement didn't have much difference from the mainline denominations. Do you follow what's going on with him? They had come his way. He hadn't gone their way. But when they came his way, his movement didn't see any reason to continue existing, and it ceased to exist. But in the 1860s, he saw the light on death and joined one of the fragment movements, not Sabbatarian Adventism, but one of the fragment movements that was existing that saw the light on death. And they formed a, the, the church called the Advent Christian Church, which still exists today in some parts of New England. In Chicago, you have one, and there's a few scattered around the world. There's one even in Kansas. Yeah, Advent Christian. It's a Sunday-keeping Christian church. My point is that Joshua Himes, 20 years after the disappointment, was still searching after and moving forward with truth, but at a slower pace. Then when he got old, he came down with cancer. He went to be treated at the world's most foremost medical institution, Battle Creek. There he became reacquainted with Ellen White, who he had met briefly when she was very young. They began corresponding, and he talked to a few others, and he began to see things clearly that he had never seen. He wrote that if he was young again, at this point he was dying in his late 80s, if he was young again, he would unite his energy with the second and third angel's messages 
with as much vigor as he had put into the first. His correspondence between Ellen White and himself, you can find in the Ellen White biographies, it's sweet and kind. And I expect to see Joshua Himes in heaven. It makes sense to me, after I had discovered that, why God didn't lay him to rest like he laid William Miller. William Miller had too much too much prejudice against the truth to accept it. Joshua Himes had too much prejudice against the truth to accept it quickly. But did he accept it eventually? He accepted it eventually. Moving backwards some 300 years. This is an Adventist history. It's just another story that illustrates the truth that I'm bringing out. And what's one of our goals in this class? To provide you with stories that are useful in your ministry. Here comes one. There was a very zealous reformer in Switzerland. His name was William Farrell. William Farrell had the kind of attributes you think of in a fiery man, including a full head of red hair. To give you an idea of William Farrell's character, when he was once walking across in the land of Switzerland, they have many of these bridges across chasms, walking across one, he met a a oncoming group of Catholics that were honoring an icon, an image. He knew that to bow to the image would be idolatry. He knew that to turn and run would be cowardly. He knew that to meet them without doing one of the two would be deadly. And probably with more zeal than good sense, he walked briskly to them, grabbed the icon, threw it over the edge to the swirling waters below, and turned and ran to show that he was not cowardly, but to get away at the same time. I'm not even recommending that. I'm just trying to help you understand him. In fact, I'm unrecommending that kind of activity. Pharaoh was gifted. He had a mind that could grasp. Pharaoh was charismatic. He could hold audiences. Pharaoh had power in his presentations. And while he was rising to, to notability in the land of Switzerland, he had begun his work in France and had been moved to Switzerland by persecution. When he was rising there in Switzerland, a, a young man united himself to him or tried that wanted to be a reformer like Pharaoh. His name is Froment. 
F-R-O-M-E-N-T. Froment was not good looking. Froment was not above average intelligent. Froment was not socially gifted. And Pharaoh was afraid to encourage him in his ambitions to do a great work for God. If you ever become a teacher or a pastor, you'll know what it's like to be afraid to encourage someone in their ambitions. Do you have to be average intelligent to understand when someone's giving you a cold shoulder? Froment realized that Pharaoh was not giving him warm attention and encouragement. It had to hurt him. Pharaoh became ambitious of winning a certain city for the gospel. Switzerland was different than other countries. In Switzerland, the cities were independent and free and could make their own decisions. And one city that had been riding the fence or siding with the Catholics was the city of Geneva. Pharaoh, in characteristic boldness, marched to Geneva, preached his message there, and after two sermons, he was expelled from the city. Froment observed the work of Pharaoh. He tried to copy him. You see, Pharaoh had used a method of going into small villages and mountains where people didn't really know how to read and teaching the children how to read. But he would teach them from the Bible and teach the children Protestant doctrines and the parents who didn't know how to read would come to the lessons because parents love to learn how to read and it's hard to have your children know things you don't know. So parents were learning how to read from a man who they didn't realize was, was inadvertently, or inadvertent to them, was purposely, secretly teaching them the truths of the gospel. And when he would receive opposition, he would disappear. Why didn't they recognize him? Because he used a pseudonym, a false name. He would introduce himself as Ulrich. which was a very common name in Switzerland. Froment had heard these stories, perhaps even observed it. I don't know if he was with him in one of those situations. And he wanted to win Geneva too, but he didn't have the courage to go inside. So he thought that he would do what he could. He would go to the little villages around the outside of Geneva and he would teach the children. He had noticed the children didn't seem to care how he looked. And they didn't seem to notice his lack of charisma. And he could communicate on their level, intellectually. And as he began teaching the children, as he might have hoped, the parents came to hear him. Except for that he had no self-confidence in his ability to teach adults. Was afraid he would do it wrongly. So he carried with him literature from the great teachers. 
Zwingli and Farrell and Echolampadius and Luther, the reformers. And when the adults came to hear from Ment, he would pass out the literature because that had good answers, gifted answers by gifted men. And these families did their business inside the city. So that literature made its way inside the city with the families that were going in to do their business in the big city. It began to be read by some of the notable people in the town. They began to talk about it amongst themselves. And as they read and studied the writings by the great reformers, the city of Geneva, without a teacher, declared in favor of the Reformation, opened its doors and invited the reformers to send them teachers so that God accomplished through a weak man ferment what he had failed to accomplish through one of the mightiest of the reformers, Pharaoh. It's the way God operates. He delights to use weak people to accomplish great things. Then there's a chance he'll use us. Let's kneel for prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that by the power that you use to accomplish your work, that you would find persons sufficiently weak and humble to be used by you to do mighty things. I depend on you for this gift, and I ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.